Welcome to the NMA podcast. My name is James Fitzgerald, reporter at New Model Advisor. On our podcast today, I'm joined by Keith Richards, Chief Executive of the Personal Finance Society. Keith, welcome to you. Thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, in recent weeks, the FCA has certainly kept us all on our toes um, to begin the year. The regulator released statistics relating to DB transfer advice, suitability and how the pensions transfer market has changed since its interventions and market-wide reviews between 2018 and March last year. It certainly makes for interesting reading, um, and we've certainly covered it here at New Model Advisor extensively over the past week or so. Um, I did notice that you know there are both both positives and negatives to take out of the data. I suppose my, my first question to you would be, following the FCA publishing its data, how do you see the DB transfer market currently? You know, what's good, what's bad, and what needs to change? Um, I mean, there's a big question on, on how much longer there's going to be a DB uh, pension transfer market, James. I think, um, you know, what, what is a real travesty, really, is that um, the unintended consequences of pension freedoms were highlighted both to the government and regulator uh, right from the outset back in 2015. And it's clear that the, uh, the regulator just didn't do enough to give very clear guidance to the market. Um, and, and that's uh, in, as a result of that, uh, obviously, uh, there's been some poor outcomes. Equally, it's, it's, I think the picture has been distorted by the way in which uh, the regulator has honed in on risk-based supervision. In other words, you know, taking 30 files and then actually giving the impression that there's a significant problem across the market. So to some degree, now that we've got far fewer firms that uh, can give DB advice, which is different from those who may have held permissions and surrendered them because they didn't really give a lot of advice, versus those that would like to give advice to consumers but, but actually can't because they can't secure the PI insurance. So, uh, you know, I think um, that the whole DB pension transfer debacle really is uh, must be shared by both government and regulator of course you know there will be evidence of bad outcomes across the sector but I still passionately believe the vast majority of financial advisors in the market absolutely set out to do the right thing uh, to their clients and, and for the public but it really is a case now of uh, you know the shock waves I continually get is uh, the next advisor contacted me to say that they, they're now struggling with their PI renewal and they're going to have to the, surrender their permissions. Mm-hmm. And you know, we've talked extensively in the past and covered as well the, the problem with the PI market. And we'll, I'll get to that in a moment. You mentioned you know quite a lot of firms leaving the market, um, especially over the past 12 months, which is what the FCA's data showed. I think it's something like... You know, over just over fifty percent have left in twenty twenty alone. About eleven hundred firms, which is, you know, huge. Yeah. Um, you know, where do we go from here? Is do we have to fix the PI market to get firms back? And if so, how do we do that? Yeah, we we absolutely need to to fix it, but we do need the government to step up and take some responsibility. It's not it's not actually down to the regulator alone. Government chose to bring in pension freedoms to give people the the right uh, back in uh, in uh, twenty fifteen and and um, they also made regulated device for DB transfers or safeguarded benefits above thirty thousand a mandatory requirement and they they baked it in law so uh, you know we need the the government to step back in frankly at the moment uh, it's difficult to see. Uh, 
exactly how we're going to fix this problem. Now, part of that is because there are policymakers who feel that no one should transfer out of their defined benefit. And, and that clearly is not the case. Uh, freedoms can be very empowering. And for some people, uh, considering a transfer is absolutely uh, the right uh, the right outcome for them, the best outcome for them, uh, but not for everyone. And clearly, the uh, so I, I think the, the, the challenge really is uh, understanding where the politicians and the policymakers really sit in this, uh, because it's not something that is fair to expect a regulator to fit the market uh, or, or to fix. Uh, the market can't fix it because, you know, the market is willing to, to address the needs of the consumer, but actually they are severely constrained. On top of that, James, I think what worries us the most is people don't really understand that the hardening of the PI market isn't just about DB, it's about the over-doubling of the, uh, the, FS, uh, the FOS limits from 155 to 350,000. You know, if you were an insurer, you would be pretty nervous about uh, potential liability coming your way in the future. What that could mean is insurers just decide to exit the market. So, uh, so you know, we have seen a, a slight concern, uh, you know, some cynical views that the regulator in the early days was kind of allowing the PI market to do its job uh, by, by simply hardening, which was then restricting uh, the number of advisors left in the market to give advice in that area. So, you know, it's a really, it, it's a catalogue of, of, of non-joined up, uh, poor thinking and, uh, and poor intervention. Mm -hmm. No, fair enough, fair enough. And in, in terms of just to keep on this PI um, topic for a moment, because it's, you know, crucially important. And a few advisors I've spoken to of late um, and compliance people, you know, the buzzword is suitability in what they've come up with as yep. well. Um, and according to the SCA's data um, released over the past few weeks, you know, it, it has been you know, more positive news in terms of, you know, just raw statistics. Um, just for a couple of examples, if I can just mention those, you know, recommended transfer rates have improved, um, as I said, according to the FCA data. Um, in 2015 to 2018, they were around, you know, 69%. Um, later in 2018, that dropped to 57%. Um, and when triage was involved, that percentage declined even further from a peak of 58 in 2016-7 yeah. um, to the latest um, FCA data statistics in March, and that was 43%. Yeah. So, you know, what do we put that, that down to? And you know, even suitable advice, you know, the latest statistic is um, that DB transfer advice, unsuitable DB transfer advice dropped to 17% in March last year. Unfortunately, we don't have any data for the rest of last year, but that is still promising. And if we can get, you know, suitable, unsuitable advice down, would that open up the PI market again for insurers? Or does it really need to be government intervention? It really needs to be government intervention because there's too much legacy liability now that that's sitting there. Uh, that that is really what you're insuring against. You're not you're not insuring for the advice you're giving today. It's actually the advice that's been given uh, over the past few years. You know that's where the big risk and liability sits if you're an insurer, uh, and that's certainly where the biggest concern. Uh, for me, it's is that where an insurer chooses not to renew and then the advice firm uh, gave advice in all good faith and expectations, but then can't secure 
uh, new PI insurance that will provide them with cover for the, the retrospective advice that they've already given. So that leaves a, a, an advice firm absolutely vulnerable uh, to that uh, additional financial risk that they wouldn't have they wouldn't have planned for. So there are there are some really you know we're in, we're in a quite a challenging place. But I think picking up on your point um, about the, the the data, of course, one of the things that was really positive for the whole advice profession was that back in 2015 when they did a comprehensive suitability review. Um, the, the FCA found that 93%, nearly 94% of cases that they reviewed then were deemed suitable. Now that obviously didn't hone in in the specific advice area, it was very broad, but that was a significant finding. And not only that, it, it was broad, it included 119 firms, hundreds of cases. So it's a very comprehensive review of the market, and I believe far more representative. What we've seen since clearly the concerns over British Steel is we've seen a regulator that's honed in on risk-based supervision and ended up reviewing a small number of firms. So in 2018, they reviewed something like 18 firms uh, and 154 cases. So it's 18 firms compared to the more comprehensive review of 119. Um, and actually, 32 files that they found were from four firms only. Uh, and unfortunately, and I mentioned that because those out of those 32 files from those four firms, uh, the regulator only found one file to be suitable. So that completely distorted the statistics that they then published in the market that gave the impression that suitability of advice had dropped dramatically from 93% down to uh, less than 50%. So uh, you know, I think we've got to be really careful with the way the regulator's gone about trying to quickly react to public pressure or political pressure. It really has run the risk of distorting uh, the picture for many people and eroding trust in the sector, which then perpetuates because once you find an, uh, you know, a case that goes wrong, uh, it just gives you the ammunition to, to validate some bad news. So I, I'm, I'm really disappointed with the way that uh, reporting has distorted the picture from the uh, the evidence that would have always been there. And we must understand uh, as well that at the time of pension freedoms, uh, the regulator wasn't very strong on giving clear directions, setting expectations, things like insistent client. You know, they really sat on the fence for a long, long time. When I knew that prior to pension freedoms, the regulator's attitude was they, they didn't expect to see many cases of an insistent client, if any at all. They would expect it to be an exception, not the norm. And that was evidenced in um, the thematic work they did on the Enhanced Pension Transfer Review, which was launched or issued just before uh, George Osborne's introduction of, the, of pension freedoms. Now that was a real conflict because the regulator was about to go and take a number of big firms into enforcement and force uh, redre consumer redress on them uh, because they believed that there were too many cases transferred under an insistent client process. Then all of a sudden we get pension freedoms and it took two years for the regulator to be coaxed into really giving a strong message into the market. So in that time, yes, there probably were a few firms that uh, commercialized on an opportunity uh, those were the firms that the regulator then honed in on and that completely distorted the picture 
of professionalism and suitability across the rest of the market. Do you think the FCA too, um, and they're all very fair points in terms of, you know, in, in the early days, they were, as you said, just before pension freeze were introduced by um, then Chancellor George Osborne, um, they were going to take action uh, against, you know, a, well, admittedly a small number of firms. And it is kind of, you have to look at both sides of the coin, I suppose. And this is just from Vise I've been speaking to of late um, for some articles analysis I've been putting together. And things are happening and they're happening quite quickly as we mentioned as i kind of mentioned earlier um especially over the past 12 to 18 months is, is the regulator gone too hard is it making up for past failures or past inaction or is this really what needs to happen does there need to with all the um all the pressure from you know the public governments um and some in the industry is 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 this the right approach what they're doing now huge data grabs you know more increased supervision, is this what needs to happen or do we need to really be a bit more pragmatic about it and you know, think more deeply about what the regulator needs to do? Yeah, they absolutely need to take a step back and be very cautious here. I think, um, you know, look, the, the regulator is vulnerable to making mistakes. It's not perfect. You know, a firm will go under on its watch and, of course, it's too easy to point the finger and say, they were asleep at the wheel and they should have caught that firm. Well, that's just impossible. You know, they do undertake a lot of good work. A lot of their supervision is effective. And a lot of firms that they've dealt with uh, have had good, positive and constructive re uh, relationships with the regulator. What we're at risk of seeing now is being very careful what we wish for. So pointing the finger at the failures of the FCA uh, don't often then result in a regulator being softer. Uh, so even if it's about it's fouled because it's had its attention in the wrong place uh, or it didn't catch firms that it should have caught, uh, that often isn't as a result of, of because it was over tough. It's often deemed by policymakers and probably public interest groups as it's been far too lenient. Uh, you know, it's applied too much of a, uh, a softer or a lighter touch regulatory approach. So what we've got to be very careful here is not to to jump on the bandwagon ourselves as a sector. We do need to work with the regulator. We do need to show our own pragmatism uh, that you know, many advice firms haven't got evidence of another firm down the road doing the wrong thing. But you know, we do find it easy to believe that we're a good firm, but the one down the road is where the problem is. And uh, you know, so that in itself, I think is time where we, we have got to step back and be prepared to work with the regulator to make sure that we don't see an overreaction because frankly, that will just damage the market more. It will erode public trust uh, and you know, cause us all sorts of problems. So it's, it's not bad firms that suffer, it's good firms that suffer. So what we've all got to recognize is, uh, you know, I passionately believe the majority are good firms. So we just got to calm down and, and step back and work with the regulator. Otherwise we will end up with another level of regulation that we just don't deserve. Mm -hmm. No, very good point too. Very good point. And in terms of, you know, not firms pointing the finger, but, um, and you brought it up earlier, you know, it's unintended consequences. And, you know, that kind of statement does come up a lot, uh, especially in regard to suitability in this, you know, this area of advice. Uh, the FCA did release its DB transfer um, suitability tool that it uses internally the other week as well, which I think probably not yourself, but took me, um, by surprise and many others that is that a game changer 
in terms of advisors being on the same page, I mean, not all, but some advisors think that the work they're doing is 100% correct. Um, and in many cases it could be, but there have obviously been issues and um, issues with some advice given where advisors unintentionally have not, wrong thing is probably not the, the right word for it, but um, haven't probably given the best advice, even though they thought they were doing the right thing. Well, this new tool change suitability for the better and you know really improve that further uh, I, mean, I think it's a very positive step forward uh, but you know uh, we've got to remember the regulator's own uh, guidance when it talks about using tools and that's that it's it's to help and assist not deliver the the solution uh, and i think in the past you know what is significant about these things that we encourage the regulator back in 2014 to join the our program of delivering uh, evidence of good practice. Now, they can't give a evidence of good practice on what's going to happen next week, but they can certainly provide some examples of what they see as good practice in the market on things that they've been supervising for the last five years. You know, so suitability reports, risk profiling, asset allocation, different cash flow modeling tools. Um, but the regulator has always been very cautious for good reason, is they don't want to be seen to be telling you what the solution is. Uh, because that solution might be wrong for your clients or the model that you're using. So, you know, you then go and do the wrong thing and say, well, I'm only following what the regulator told me. So I think, you know, it's a very good move. It, it, it is, it is, does demonstrate a willingness to uh, give examples. But I think many of the firms I'm talking to are just using it as a basis of uh, an example of where the regulator's head is and where they see, uh, you know, the suitability fitting so that firms can better align that with the way or the methodology that they're already applying. Um, and it's a really good point about suitability. You know, in, in a previous role, I did used to have to look at some of the challenging failures that as a firm uh, we made on some of our advisors, uh, some of our independent financial advisors. And, um, you know, it's always a challenging because you're starting at the basis of your compliance department have failed uh, a case against a very competent and a very experienced uh, independent financial advisor that we were supporting. Um, and you know passionately that that person absolutely didn't have any intention of doing the wrong thing. But of course, against a bench, you know, a, a desk-based supervisory review, it was fouled for a number of reasons. Uh, and then we would have to subsequently look at that. Now, the problem is with that is, of course, you weren't in the room talking to the client at the time. So you're looking at something really cold. Uh, and, you know, frankly, if you're not convinced that there's enough evidence on the file to support the gaps that you think exist to prove that suitability, you fail it. Uh, now, immensely frustrating for advisors. I've got to tell you, you know, not as a regulator, uh, as a director of a major IFA business, you know, I had to to control, you know, calm some advisors down who, who would just decide. I can imagine, especially in you know internal circumstances as well. It's yeah, it can be very frustrating, but you know, a difficult situation. It, it is, James, and I, and I think um, you know the, the the challenge with that is, of course, I think there's also an acceptance in the regulatory field that that often advisors don't don't hear. And that's that regulators have told me in the past that there isn't a lot of evidence of advisors deliberately doing the wrong thing. But of course, when they fail cases, there's plenty of the wrong thing being done. Uh, and I think that's why we've got to be a bit more pragmatic about these is that even when we hear of a firm that's failed or the regulators has suspended 
some activities. It doesn't mean that any evidence of them deliberately doing the wrong thing was ever found. It was just their systems and controls might not have met the supervisory's team on that occasion. So they, they suspend activities. Too many people jump very quickly to the conclusion that that firm was a bad firm doing the wrong thing. That isn't the way regulation works. And, and there's often very little evidence of people being proven to have set out to do the wrong thing, even the wrong things being done. So we need to think about that as well, because when people are found to have deliberately done the wrong thing, they're called criminals. They're people that should be absolutely pulled out and locked up. Um, that isn't the case in our sector. And I think we, we do need to ourselves be a bit balanced about when something fails, what does that really mean? Did that advice firm really intend to cause any harm? Did they cause any harm? Because I've got to tell you again, I, you know, I failed cases where to the advisor's frustration three years later when we did a quick comparison of what we thought the right process should have been uh, compared to what the advisor did in some instances, depending on the market, uh, the client actually financially benefited as a result of something we were deeming as, as less suitable advice. So, um, you know, can you imagine how frustrating that was for an advisor? But it didn't stop us failing the case because it didn't meet the standards that, that we believed were promoted and we expected an, adv an advisor to follow. So that in itself is, is you know, it's more complex than people realise. And I, I think it's good that we've got a regulator that is reacting. What is what I'm slightly nervous about is we've got a regulator reacting uh, to political pressure, which often isn't a good thing because it could drive them to do the wrong, to, to, to do certain uh, certain behaviours uh, follow. So as I say, we, we've just got to calm down ourselves and, and think about how we actually work with the regulators to make sure that uh, we continue to have a stable market that actually ends up serving the consumer better. In terms of speaking to the, you know, having open dialogue with the regulator as well, I'm aware, that, you know, the PFS, other industry bodies, um, FSCS, you know, PI insurers, the lot, have been speaking to the regulator quite a lot more regularly. Um, well, were in the latter uh, you know, quarter of last year, especially around um, you know its retail investment review or consultation at the moment or call for input, and you know the two biggest parts of that really are you know the FSCS levy, which is now you know in total gone over one point four billion. There's now approximately you know two hundred and forty million for advisors. Um, I remember hearing back in November that you know the FCA is open to change and it's you know willing to talk. Has there been any more movement on that? Are they still, you know, pressing for open dialogue with you know, bodies such as the PFS? Yeah, they are. Uh, we do have a meeting actually scheduled for tomorrow, um, where I've been able to invite uh, many of the ex-presidents of the Personal Finance Society, all of whom are practitioners in the market as well. So we we are having a further input session with uh, the FCA. Um, I, look, I mean, I don't think it's a case of the FCA aren't willing to engage the market. And there is now an acceptance that with a hardening PI market, which isn't unique to our sector, by the way, PI hardening markets are, are impacting other sectors and consumer outcomes as, as well, uh, in particular since the Grenville fires. Um, uh, even insurance brokers, because of the, uh, the uh, class case that went against business interruption, on the insurance sector, even insurance brokers are, are reporting that they're struggling to get, you know, fair terms or, or uh, within uh, the PI market. So, 
So it is a problem that both government and regulators just have to, to size up to. They can see the ongoing problem of increasing uh, regulatory costs, in particular the FSCS. Uh, I mean, after all, the government did put it into to the financial advice market review as they did PI. Neither of those situations have got any better. They've got worse. So by definition, it's on record that the government, government themselves flagged it as a problem. The issue that we've really got, James, is, is the speed at which you can actually fix the problem. And, uh, you know, we've always passionately believed that we do need the government to consider a complete uh, root and branch review of the, of the whole system. Uh, and, and it would need then legislative change. In the interim, we've suggested some things like the government stepping in and offering an upper layer of, of um, insurance for PI. So it doesn't mean to say that the government would ever have to pay out on that, but at least it would give PI insurers a little bit more uh, confidence and certainty about where their liabilities sit uh, and at what trigger point the government might have to, to step in. Now, that, that would be a temporary solution until we find a better longer term one. Um, as you know, you know, I've shared with, uh, with you in the past uh, a solution that we had proposed to the government to fix the whole problem, which includes both FSCS and PI insurance. Um, we, we've, and we've renewed that, uh, that recommendation of a solution to the government. On that basis, we, you know, it may not be perfect. There may never be a perfect solution. Sometimes you have to go with uh, the least worst. Uh, but one thing is for sure, the current course is, is just not uh, sustainable. So we've got, to, we've got to do something and we've, we've got to engage the government. So I, I, absolutely, it's not that the FCA are not willing to talk and it's not that they haven't acknowledged uh, that it is a problem. It's just the speed at which uh, I suspect uh, we need politicians to step in and uh, they're, they're probably preoccupied on a few other urgent matters at the moment. There is one or two other things going on, unfortunately, yes, at the moment. Um, and time is, you know, advisors and in the industry doesn't really have time on this, do they? Um, and I think Charles Randall said um, in an interview late last year, after you know, highlighting um, the FSCS and PI issues that you know, change may take several years, which is a bit of a shock. Um, you know, as you said, the government may have to step in. Is that probably the more realistic option at the moment instead of waiting many, many years down the track, potentially? Yeah, I, I think it is. I, I think. I mean, I don't think we can push the can down the road uh, for too much longer. So mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, it. there is some slow progress being made. Uh, someone asked me uh, recently why the Personal Finance Society was pushing for a financial advice market review too, when, of course, so many people would... would critically say what a waste of time it was and, and you know it never delivered anything. The reason that we've called for it uh, with the government is because it wasn't just about PI and FSCS. It, there were 28 work streams, all of them were focused on increasing access to advice and guidance uh, for a much wider uh, range of the public. It did identify over-regulation as a barrier to new entrants coming in to existing firms struggling to offer or broaden its services. Uh, it was stifling innovation. So it, it, it had a whole range uh, and a very broad spectrum, which is where you need to be rather than honing in in one area. So there will be some cynics out there that think when we're honing in on trying to address 
the immediate problem of increasing cost and PI uh, that, that it's too narrow and that's not the reason for the advice gap and, and they're right but it's a major contributing impact at the moment to reducing access to advice for things like DB transfers but worse than that it's increased the cost which means everyone is having to shoulder a bigger share of the uh, the increasing cost of operating so it's not just those people who need DB advice in fact you can't give new DB advice, but the chances are your premium is still 10 times what it was three years ago. So, so your client, every client under your advice is now going to be impacted by that potentially uh, bigger cost. So it, we've got to get people around the table, but we've got to do it in a way that, you know, we've got to stop being cynical about just because we tried something and it didn't work. There's reasons why it didn't work. Why did pharma fail? It, it only started because the government chose to to intervene and the government declared that there was no advice gap and something they wanted to address why has it failed to deliver because brexit came along and every one of the work streams was being driven by the treasury the moment brexit almost instantly many of those really bright people were just taken off straight on to brexit issues to try to solve or sort out what was going to happen as a result of brexit and that just left the regulator. Well, it's not the regulator's job to drive policy in this country. Uh, they need to supervise the rules that are in place. So, um, so I, I, you know, I think people need to step back and understand rather than be, be critical of the fact that, yes, it didn't deliver. There's no question about that. We put it in our submission in the call for input. Um, you know, it's no good pretending there were some things, but most of the things identified have got worse, not better. And we need to get the government to come back and take responsibility for something it instigated and started to drive, except that other things got in the way, but we need to actually finish some unfinished work that they started back in 2016. Are you confident of this succeeding? Another of you getting off the ground? It's always a challenge. Uh, I mean, we're not going to give up, uh, keep you know, pushing the point and trying to be as reasonable and balanced about why uh, you know, it needs to be instigated and reminding the government that it was the government who identified this. So they do have a duty of care and a responsibility to the electorate uh, to step up to the plate and, and reinstate uh, the Financial Advice Market Review too. And just finally to you know, finish things off um, and yeah, to give us both a break, get off the FCA, DB transfers and the government for a bit. Um, PFS launched its Vulnerability Task Force yep. this year. Can you please tell me a bit about that? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, it's a really important task force uh, for us. So you know, we're seeing increasingly the FCA is increasing its focus on vulnerabilities. Uh, so is the government. Uh, we're all worried about uh, the impact of, of COVID, um, you know, probably even after we've returned to some sense of normality. So vulnerability is a key area. Um, but it's also identifying, uh, I've spoken to advisors in the past who don't believe that they deal with vulnerable clients. Uh, and it's kind of missing the point because everyone who uses a professional advisor is technically vulnerable because the advisor knows so much more than they do. Uh, and often the consumer has no option but to either trust what they're being told or, or not. And we know that individual trust is a big component part of these long-term relationships. If you take uh, British Steel, the, the issue in some of the cases with British Steel is that those consumers were placed in a really vulnerable situation. You know, their, their 
Gold-plated pension was a threat. They didn't really understand what the lifeboat scheme was. All of a sudden they were giving a, a cash transfer value that they could capture and ring fence and at least protect. Uh, and they were expected to make these in, in really unreasonable periods of time. Now, any advisor dealing with a client in that situation must demonstrate uh, that they're identifying the vulnerability of that client in that situation. So that's a really vulnerable, so, so vulnerability isn't about uh, you know, age or cognitive impairment or disabilities, it's much broader. What we're also trying to do through vulnerability is create an opportunity to engage more consumers because arguably many of the barriers to engage our profession are based around people feeling vulnerable, not knowing. Uh, how much is it going to cost? So vulnerability we're looking at in a much broader sense. We also want to create a centre uh, of um, reference so that advisor firms can come in. We've created a consumer guide, uh, which is what the task force is really based around. It's it's uh, a, a complete consumer's, consumer guide to get out to the public. But it's also a consumer guide that then advisors can adopt a charter which actually commits them to nine under, uh, underpinning principles of how they deal with vulnerability. And by doing that, they can uh, demonstrate a badge uh, and are expected to publish uh, those nine principles on their website. So it's just how, how we voluntarily bring the sector together and deal with vulnerability in a way uh, that demonstrates our willingness to address some of the concerns that government regulators got, but more importantly, we believe that actually addressing vulnerability will increase business opportunities because it will bring certain barriers down that will encourage more people to engage our profession. No, perfect. It sounds like a great initiative and especially now in the, dragging into this year, it's a great time to do it. So no, thank you very much for that, Keith. And well, hope, um, thank you for joining hopefully us. Hopefully James, uh, new model advisor, will, uh, will be a supporter of the uh, Financial Vulnerability Task Force. Of course, of course, we will. Thank <laughs> you.